Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Since the invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, governments and tech companies have taken swift action to limit the flow of propaganda out of Russia, and Russia has in turn taken draconian measures to limit the flow of information into Russia, including banning some Western social media platforms, crushing what remained of independent journalism in the country, and cracking down on free expression generally. How do these events fit in the broader scheme of things? The trajectory of global internet freedom and digital rights, just like the trajectory for democracy generally, has been going in the wrong direction for years. What do governments, organizations, and the community of individuals concerned with these issues need to do to try to change that trajectory and to support those working to turn the tide? To answer these questions and more, I invited three experts to join me for this week's podcast. My name is Rebecca McKinnon. I'm Vice President for Global Advocacy at the Wikimedia Foundation. My name is Ali Funk. I'm a Senior Research Analyst for Technology and Democracy at Freedom House. Justin Sherman, I'm a fellow at the Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Atlantic Council. So, Ali, I'm going to start with you, and you've written both for Tech Policy Press and then much more expansively in uh, Freedom House's Freedom on the Net report about moves by the Russian government to hive itself off from the rest of the world's internet or the Western internet. To what extent are the Russian moves over the last couple of weeks following that trajectory? And to what extent are they novel? It's a great question. And I think, you know, what we've seen over the past three weeks or so, it's really been long in the making. Um, President Putin and the Kremlin has have really placed the groundwork for isolating Russia from the international internet for the past, you know, five, eight years or so. And they've kind of done this through a number of different ways. So one is going after that underlying infrastructure of the internet. Um, passing repressive regulations, sort of fine-tuning the country's censorship apparatus, and then just strong-arming international tech companies um, to do their own bidding. And if we're just going to zoom in on one of those, if you take this sort of evolving regulatory environment in the country, one just new example from just February is this new landing law that requires companies to set up these legal entities in the country. So forcing international companies to have either local offices or having staff in country. And this sort of creates a new point of leverage that the state can use to pressure companies to acquiesce to its demands. And it's really clear how this has already played out in Russia Um, for folks who have been following sort of the tech policy realm for a few months now, last September, Apple and Google capitulated to government demands to remove this smart voting app that was created by Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader amidst elections. And a lot of us in the sort of human rights, digital rights community really suspected that the companies made this decision after getting targeted threats about their in-country employees. And just over the weekend, the Washington Post really confirmed these suspicions. So they reported that state agents showed up at the home of a Google employee and said that if you don't remove this app within 24 hours, we're throwing you in jail. So that's sort of how they've been able to strong arm companies into submission. And then just one other point that I think that is key to the conversation that's happening today around the war is how 
the state has propped up these domestic alternative platforms to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter over the years and forced domestic users onto them. So two of the most popular social media companies, Vocantakte and Adna Klasiki. And, you know, it's not that Facebook and Twitter are these, you know, utopian platforms that protect human rights. We all know that's not the case. Um, but the real difference here between, you know, some US-based companies and some of these Russian platforms are that the Russian platforms are owned by Putin allies, or they are more susceptible or, you know, comply more to repressive domestic laws. So it's significantly less likely that Russian users are going to be able to find reliable information on, you know, VK, for example, and that they are going to be able to organize with sort of like-minded users. So long story short, you know, these moves aren't surprising in my mind over the past three weeks. But I think what's really interesting is that Putin has been able to more swiftly move towards cyber sovereignty in a matter of days than he has over the past five years. So to some extent, you know, we have also seen calls from some inside the Ukrainian government to expedite cutting Russia off from the web. Um, I believe the minister for digital transformation had called to cut off various services there, including uh, even Netflix. So it, it sort of seems like we've ended up in a more reasonable place with regard to the way that at least Western social media firms, tech firms are approaching things. Um, but, you know, the, the arm of the government of the certainly European Union and the US are, are still pretty strong in all this. Rebecca, you've written that, you know, less internet freedom in Russia is, is ultimately not just bad for Russians, but bad for the, for the world. What's, what's your perspective on what's happened in the last couple of weeks? Well, thanks, Justin, and, and thanks for organizing this podcast. Um, I, you know, just building on, on many things that, that Ali said and what you just mentioned, there's a lot of pressure on Western lawmakers, uh, Western governments and, and companies uh, based in the West to, to punish the invader and, and to act kind of righteously. And there's, of course, a lot of concern about disinformation campaigns, cyber attacks originating from Russia. And, and so there's a great deal of, of pressure um, on companies to, to cut off Russia. And is some of that pressure coming from a very effective lobby uh, that, that the Ukrainian government and, and Ukrainian diaspora uh, have mounted, uh, understandably, given, given uh, what's happening. But I was part of a, or the Wikimedia Foundation uh, has been part of a coalition, uh, including Access Now, Article 19, Center for Democracy and Technology, the Committee to Protect Journalists, and a number of other civil society organizations who, who are saying, let's not overcorrect here. Let's, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are sanctions that are being put in place, and we're seeing some companies citing sanctions as, as a reason to cut off services to the Russian people, not just the Russian government or, or state actors. And we need to be very careful not to cut off civil society in Russia. There are a lot of platforms and, and channels for communication that are not yet blocked. Wikipedia is not, not blocked, but there are a lot of other uh, messaging channels and, and less well-known platforms that, that people are using to share facts and information. And, and that is such a vital time. And of course, you know, the Russian people do not equal the Russian government. People need a lifeline to the outside world. They, they need the ability to communicate within Russia. 
uh, and it's absolutely vital that that we not forsake them. Um, but another point is that we need to be really careful about how the world that's opposed to the, the part of the world, the, the countries and organizations and companies that are opposed to the Russian invasion of Ukraine respond to this because it sets a precedent. If we're saying it's okay when you your country is in conflict with another country to cut that country off, we're going to see that happening. Just lots of governments are going to use that as an excuse to require their companies to, to cut off services or cut, cut off connections to nation states, to networks in nation states with which they have disagreements. And that's just going to hurt uh, civil society. It's going to hurt free and open uh, society even more um, than than uh, the current trends uh, we've already seen that that Ali has has outlined. So we need to be very very careful not to go overboard uh, because just as uh, well-meaning efforts to address disinformation get turned around and gaslit in in ways that actually uh, cut off civil society, um, the same is is going to be true for kind of the the sanctions logic. Justin, I want to come to you and ask you about the way that perhaps Vladimir Putin is considering this situation. What do you think he sees from his perch in the Kremlin? Yeah, as Ali and Rebecca said, this has been, this is not something that happened overnight, right? Vladimir Putin wanting to censor, wanting to control technology companies. When Putin first came into office, there were some members of the security services in Russia who were paying attention to the internet, thinking about the ways it could be used to undermine the regime. But that was not most people, and this was not really a priority, uh, actually. So you had some doctrines released and other things, but it wasn't top of mind in the Kremlin to control the internet. Then you had a series of events over the next decade, decade and a half, that really accelerated uh, this fear that the internet was a foreign project and the internet was going to be used to undermine the Putin regime. So this is things like uh, in the 2008 Russo-Georgian War, the Kremlin physically restricted access for journalists trying to get to the conflict zone, but then saw that people were using websites and microblogs to get out truthful information about what the, the Russian military was doing, doing in Georgia. And so then all of a sudden you had this concern in the Kremlin, well, wait a minute, we can't really control the narrative around this war. Then you had other things, right? Arab Spring, protests against Putin, all to say, come you know, 2013, 2014, Putin quite literally saw the internet as a foreign project and saw Western social media platforms, particularly as arms of the U.S. government. And I think, I think this is really uh, important to stress, right? Because this is often brushed off as propaganda. The Russians just say this. That's true. There is propagandistic value gained from these statements, but Putin quite literally sees it this way. And so as we've been talking about, when you have these platforms, then sometimes complying with sanctions, sometimes of their own volition, restricting RT, uh, trying to curtail access for Russian citizens to uh, online services, that just hardens that view in the Kremlin that these are foreign puppets and that sort of plays into that extremely 
conspiratorial and, and paranoid worldview. Obviously, policymakers here in Washington would laugh at the thought that they can control social media because we can't even regulate that correctly. But uh, but re- like really, that is the Kremlin view. And so that's why I think, as we've been saying in the coming weeks, in the coming months, you know, Putin's paranoia around this is higher than it's ever been. And so I, I think we can only expect more crackdowns, which range from the digital to, as Ali said, actually targeting uh, technology company employees and contractors, uh, right? We had the Wikipedia, you know, moderator in Belarus grabbed up, right? And, and all these kinds of things. So, and I do want to come to what this might mean specifically, Rebecca, for an entity like Wikipedia, uh, but Justin, really quickly, I mean, you know, we've, we've seen Putin just in the last couple of days issue statements targeting the Russian diaspora, people who are, you know, outside of the country, but perhaps uh, he feels have strayed from Russian values, that seems to me to really betray his mindset. You know, he, he is looking at this almost as a, a purge or a cleansing of, of Russian society. Yes. So there's, there's a couple of things here, right? So Putin is of the view that if you are ethnically Russian in some form, you are always Russian, right? This is part of the diluted argument for taking over Ukraine is that there are some Russians there and they belong in this idea of Russian empire and all of these things. But related, he also gets very angry when Putin, when he perceives people he believes to be Russian, you know, betraying in his view, the Russian state. And so right now, something like protesting this war, to your point, is not just a threat to the regime. It is also, in his view, undermining the national interests of the Russian Federation. Uh, And so that sort of is literally an anger uh, with which he brings to these kinds of decisions to crack down, as you said, on civil society and and target, you know, people in in Belarus and Ukraine and Eastern Europe um, in general, who he perceives to be engaged in that that idea of betrayal. Rebecca, with regard to Wikipedia, entities like it uh, that to some extent, are premised on the idea of an open web and premised on the free exchange of, of information and ideas. H- how do you deal with this situation? Um, how do you continue to hopefully provide some service inside Russia? Are you able to do that? Well, we are currently accessible in Russia. That's all I can say. And uh, we hope to continue to be accessible. Um, uh, that said, our community is not changing the way it works in response to threats, uh, to publicly reported um, complaints about some of the content that has appeared on uh, Wikipedia, um, but our our you know Wikipedia is a you know global movement of people who believe in the right to share knowledge, and when I say knowledge, that means of course information that is verified with sources that point to to facts, right? Not not just kind of whatever content you want to share, right? And the rules around what is allowed on a a given article or a given language Wikipedia uh, or even a a set of topics. So for example, around uh, COVID-19 medical topics, those are doctors and scientists who decide what sources are allowed to be cited on those pages and what are not. It's, it's not a government. It's not, you know, the foundation making some centralized decision. It's the community drawing on local and specific expertise, determining what are sources of truth in, in that context, and then 
setting rules and 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 setting a content moderation process around that. And and so topics related to Russia and Ukraine in the current situation are no different. That the the pages that appear on Wikipedia in relation to these topics are moderated according to the rules that have been set by the community for a long time um, that are based in the belief in verified sources. And that is not changing. We do have a problem <laughs> where, where just over the past, uh, you know, and this is, this is a trend that's been going on for a long, for some while now, you have the rise of regulatory trends and sort of aggressive policy from a number of states, you know, Russia, uh, having been one recent very aggressive example of laws and regulations in which governments are kind of seeking to control what truth is uh, or other other kind of entities or parties are trying to control what truth is. And so, you know, that, that is a real challenge to a movement that, that believes that, that communities can come together and based on some common values you know, have standards around truth and share that across borders. And uh, to answer your question, you know, how do we defend against that? I think part of it is is just, again, there are people all across the world um, in every country who believe in the importance of sharing facts and truth and believe in the, in the importance of not just sharing knowledge across borders, but contributing to it and, and governing you know, and, and really protecting the integrity of that knowledge. This is a, a global belief and movement, and it does unfortunately seem to threaten those uh, who are interested in promoting narratives that do not have a basis in verified facts. Frankly, I, I think in the long term, you know, how do you counter that? You, you build the movement. Uh, you build the global public understanding of why it is it's in society's interest, why it's in the interest of our communities, wherever we happen to live, to have access to facts and to be able to contribute to that corpus of facts based on our context and our needs. And that that is a universal human right that everybody in every community is going to need to defend. It's not something that the foundation is going to be able to defend on high for people around the world. It's that people in communities around the world who care about the, the need for independently sourced and verified knowledge and why that's important to their lives it needs to be defended everywhere. Again, uh, we're, we're in a rough period right now, certainly. There's a lot of concern for the safety of many people in many places um, uh, at the moment, but uh, we're, we're very much hoping that in the long run, that communities everywhere will let their governments know that not having the right to access independently, independently verified and sourced knowledge and to contribute to that corpus of knowledge, not being able to do that is unacceptable. Ali, your group has, of course, tracked the movement towards more sort of authoritarian circumstance across the globe, the, the curtailing of digital rights. And while everybody on this call agrees with Rebecca about the importance of freedom of expression and, uh, of course, access to a fact, 
tide seems to be going in the wrong direction. And it sort of feels perhaps like a bit of a, a worsening moment right now. Um, where, where do you see the kind of global picture in a year? Yeah, I mean, predictions are a tough game to be in, but I don't think it's outlandish to say, I don't think it's going to get any better. I think it's only going to get worse. You know, Russia and Freedom on the Net, the, the project I run for Freedom House, where we um, analyze internet freedom in 70 countries around the world, Russia is already pretty low in the report. Um, and I think it's safe to say it's it's going to only decline further. But sort of how I see it is what we've been tracking over the past three weeks is an acceleration of a global trend that has been around for a few years, not necessarily the start of a newer one. So Russia isn't sort of the only country moving toward digital isolationism. China is really the obvious example, but um, you can also look at sort of Iran and what the government there has been able to effectively do over the past decade. And a more recent one is how Myanmar, how the military um, sort of took control of the digital space following the coup last year and has tried to sort of prop up their own sort of intranet there um, and blacklisting a lot of international sites. And part of sort of the, the move toward digital isolationism is, you know, this sort of battle between the tech sector and the state that we're talking about. Um, and that's been happening in Russia and how sort of the rights of Internet users are taking the back seat and feeling the brunt of this battle. And you can sort of look at if we're looking at a country that is not as authoritarian as Russia, you know, Nigeria is a really interesting case study where the government blocked Twitter because the platform um, deleted a tweet from the president that they, uh, you know, claimed to threaten violence against a particular community. The government then said, we're going to block Twitter. Uh, and in order for Twitter to come online again, they had to agree to a whole slew of conditions, um, including this local presence um, requirement that, you know, the company can then use to coerce Twitter to comply with sort of politicized censorship or surveillance demands. So I think that's only going to get worse in the coming years. And then I think this other really interesting element I've been thinking a lot about that Rebecca sort of touched on earlier is how are the, the behavior of the EU and the US right now going to reverberate around the world? So I'm trying to get, you know, zoom in on sort of the EU's demands to block RT and Sputnik in the EU for EU-based users. And one thing that Freedom House has tracked is how Governments learn from each other, and particularly these more authoritarian states will point to actions of democratic governments to justify their own repressive actions. And if you look at sort of Germ the ways in which Germany's Netz DG law was a model for censorship um, legislation around the world, that's kind of the perfect example of this. So in thinking about how, you know, the EU government compelled platforms to take, you know, remove RT and Sputnik, it's obvious that these, you know, news outlets, if you can call them that, are essential components of Russia's propaganda apparatus. There's no doubt. I don't think anybody is, is saying that's not the case. But to see how the EU compelled these companies to block pl these platforms or these accounts in such a non-transparent manner is really alarming to me. And then even beyond that, it's not just, okay, block these accounts, but go after ordinary users who are also sharing these links. It's incredibly far reaching. And the thing that I'm particularly concerned about is that we have only seen the legal order because Google forwarded it to the Lumen database. Um, and I'm not a lawyer. Um, I will say that up front. But, you know, as Rebecca said, is seeing how sanctions are being used to go after, you know, certain types of information 
is a really, you know, concerning trend that we'll need to watch closely so that we aren't using sanctions then to overcorrect and we're leaning then on censorship because I'm really hesitant in thinking that censorship is effective way to deal with disinformation here. Justin, given the uh, nature of this conflict and the potential for conflagration, is there uh, a worry that, you know, the internet and digital communication generally will just become a more securitized space, even in democracies? I think that is a real risk here, right? There are certainly lots of ways we can talk about how the internet and the internet policy are already securitized. Most U.S. government investment in cybersecurity, for example, is concentrated in the military and not protecting civilian and private sector and uh, civil society orgs, for example. But I, I do think, as has been said, there is a real sudden ratcheting up of action against tech services, online content. And there's also a desire, I think, you know, coming from a good place, right? Seeing a horrible uh, illegal war, the Russian government is blatantly carrying out war crimes. But this desire to feel like I can't do everything, but I can do something, therefore I should do that something, right? The the letter, for example, saying we're going to set up a multi-stakeholder coalition, or we should set up a multi-stakeholder coalition to decide who gets disconnected from the internet that several internet governance folks signed. Uh, and there, there's been certainly plenty of heated uh, debate about that to the point that why is this conversation only coming up now? Certainly there have been plenty of past conflicts with disinformation where we could be having this conversation about protecting populations, right? Chemical weapons in Syria, or you could pick any other number of examples, genocide as, as Ali mentioned in Myanmar. Um, and so there's so much entangled there, but, but, I, but I do think, right, the securitization thing is a problem. There are a lot of things being done very quickly under the guise of security. Some of that is security motivated for real. Some of that is convenient signaling, like pulling uh, bandwidth out of Russia. And yes, right, to be quite clear, I'm talking about a letter that is different from the letter that Rebecca mentioned. Uh, nonetheless, yes, I think there's just a lot of quick movement here, and it, it is very much concerning. Rebecca, do you want to jump in on that? Yeah, I, I guess one thing that, you know, as, as people have been discussing this, that, that I think a, a number of people from the, the human rights space have raised is the importance that governments and companies, when considering actions to take, step back from this reflex, oh, I've got to do something because I'm under pressure to do something and say, what type of action is necessary and proportionate, Right. How, how can we, I, I think human rights standards and, and a bit of a quick human rights impact assessment, as it were, or, or at least a bit of due diligence on what are the human rights implications across the internet for this action I'm going to take and, and, and do an analysis is so important. And it's generally, for the most part, not happening. Some of us have, have been calling on governments and companies to include a, a, a human rights analysis in decision making of this type for a long time. You know, uh, I, I wish that 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 would somehow begin to to take hold, particularly in crisis situations where the human rights implications are potentially especially acute. So I want to turn a little bit, just zoom out a bit and talk about um, how uh, the last couple of three weeks um, and these general 
trends that we've discussed may impact the situation in a couple of other countries. Um, I want to look at China and also India. Um, you know, China, you know, arguably already largely hived off uh, from the Western internet, somewhat porous, you know, of course, but um, do these recent events portend anything for the relationship to China, uh, the way it may behave, if in fact there's a, a conflict that has to do with it at some point? Does anybody want to take that on? I'm just going to say I'm the daughter of a professor of Chinese history, and I've spent a lot of time in China. And the one thing I know about China is that anybody who makes a prediction about what's going to happen in China uh, in the short to medium term is someone you should not listen to. Um, but uh, <laughs> I see a thumbs up on the Zoom here. Um, so... You know, and the one thing that you can uh, predict about China is that every once in a while, something that nobody imagined would happen will happen. And that's pretty much the, the, the only thing you can count on. Um, so it's, it's really hard to know how this is going to play out, uh, whether it has to do with Chinese Internet policy or, or kind of Chinese foreign policy and, and internal political dynamics. Generally, uh, this entire situation clearly took the Chinese government by surprise. Um, I'm putting kind of my general hat on here and taking off my Wikimedia hat on and as, as someone who's just followed China for a long time and kind of the implications, it's going to take a long time to, we have no idea, I think, how, how this is going to play out with China. Let's move to India. India, somewhat caught in the middle, you know, appears to be moving in a somewhat illiberal dire direction generally on matters of uh, internet, digital freedoms, digital rights, looking for a maybe slightly more censorious control over the web, more regional shutdowns on the internet there. And in recent weeks, it seemed to be somewhat more cozy with regard to Putin than uh, other democracies. Anything we can tell about its trajectory? So I think India is a really interesting case because the geopolitics and the context are really, really different one of the main things that differentiates Russia and India when you're talking about their internet space is that India is a democracy and the ruling party has really broad support from folks in the country and Prime Minister Modi won in largely fair elections. And since then, he's been able to so effectively submit the BJP's rule and in doing so has overseen this large scale crackdown on human rights, particularly, you know, the Muslim community in the country, civil society activists, and there's large support for it. So, you know, you mentioned the, the country leads and the number of internet shutdowns. I've even seen how, um, you know, party officials in China have pointed to India's internet shutdowns to legitimize the Chinese government's own actions, which I think is really uh, alarming that they've used that as their case study. India has been implicated in many of the spyware revelations of late. It's passed some really repressive regulations like the new IT rules. Um, that go after encryption, free expression, data protection, pretty much you name it. It's one of the most comprehensive laws, uh, I think, in the world right now. And what sort of makes, I think, India a little bit different than when you're comparing to the, the China, the Russian context is, you know, India beyond China, well, India is the second largest market for internet users. And international companies that aren't operating in China really don't want to lose their access to the Indian market. Um, if you also think about like WhatsApp, you know, is, is India's biggest market. So the BJP has been able to effectively use that um, to force the companies um, to, to comply with, you know, some of the censorship demands that we've seen of late. And 
the government hasn't sort of gone toward wholesale banning Twitter, Facebook, or WhatsApp, like you've seen sort of in Russia. But we do know that the Indian state is willing to do that because back in June, they blocked um, a ton of social media platforms owned by Chinese um, companies like WeChat and TikTok. So long story short, I always call India sort of this bellwether for internet freedom and internet governance because it is so effective at normalizing digital repression because of its democracy status as sort of a legitimate policy response and creating this playbook that other backsliding democracies want to follow. I have an interesting factoid. Uh, You might not know this, but uh, the second largest number of contributions to English Wikipedia from any country is from India. So that COVID-19 related article you may have uh, checked out uh, for, for some purpose in the, in the past month, um, some large chunk of it could have been written by a, a doctor living in India. I mean, one, one, one thing to just point out there is, is that the people of India uh, who are online, and of course, there's still a lot who aren't uh, or not meaningfully, but the people of India who are online are a huge part of the free knowledge movement, the online ecosystem as as we know it today. And and so again, lots of things to be concerned about in terms of regulatory and and legal trends in India that I don't need to repeat um, because Ali described them quite well, but also a very complex society with, again, a lot of people there who believe very passionately in participating in global knowledge, uh, fact-based <laughs> um, uh, uh, projects and movements and, and being part of the global conversation to, to be part of uh, the sharing of, of knowledge across borders to the benefit of their own communities and, and to, to help people everywhere. Again, you know, as we think about where the world is going, that's the good news story. And let's figure out how to support and empower that. It is good to, uh, as we kind of round things up, to have have something positive to look at in this particular moment. Um, but I want to I want to kind of turn to your some last thoughts and and just maybe ask each of you to uh, provide something that you're watching right now, something that you think is an indicator of of where things might head uh, with regard to this overall conversation we're having on freedom, uh, digital rights, uh, freedom on the net. Justin, could I start with you? Sure, and I'll make I'll make two comments on sort of indicators before I, I list uh, I think what what I'll be looking for. So, one is I think we've talked about is it's important not to take agency away from other actors, right? Especially you know living in the U.S. and that's what a lot of us unfortunately are taught to do, right? When we talk about this, and there is that argument, right? The Russian government's going to do some of these things anyway, or wanted to do some of these things anyway. But I think. We have to remember it's much more nuanced than that. As Rebecca said from the outset, right, things we do do have precedence. They will, as Ali said, get referenced by other states to take certain actions. So there is that issue. Yet you can also do or frame things in certain ways that play more or less into another actor's wishes. And I think that's really something that a lot of companies are not grasping here. I think, right, for example, Facebook being a bit ahead of others and and being a bit more pro-Ukraine, sort of we support the Ukrainian people, this is terrible, right? I, you know, I I don't know if that was the right way to phrase that, right? Like there are certain things you can do with with Putin 
to play more or less into that. So, so that's just one thing. The other thing I'll say before sort of the indicators is that the Russian government has talked for years about this domestic internet and has not really gotten there. There have been a bunch of repressive decrees. There have been uh, a bunch of, uh, you know, surveillance moves, but a lot of it's stalled. They have not, uh, as of last spring, been able to effectively throttle websites. They did a crap job throttling Twitter because any website that ended in t.co got blocked. So that turns out there's quite a few websites uh, with .com that end in T. The data localization rules that have been in place since 2015, basically every major foreign company on the planet just ignores them and pays these tiny fines because the Kremlin hasn't made it a priority. So there's all this stuff. And then it's different from China too, right? They don't have the tech capacity. The architecture of the internet is very different. China started with nationalized uh, four, I think, or five core backbones Versus in Russia, there are hundreds, if not thousands of internet providers. It is an extremely diffuse network, right? And so there's sort of that thing as well that to some extent, Russia's lowered technical capacity vis-a-vis China, its emphasis on coercion, on harassment, on confusing speech laws, on local office laws, right, is kind of a different model for internet repression. And I think that's sort of one thing to watch, as Ali said, as we see this this sort of rise more globally. Um, all to say that was that was long-winded, but I think watching Putin's rhetoric is really important. The escalation in the past few weeks, the hearing this coming Monday to designate Facebook as, or Meta as a terrorist organization, which is symbolic, but by the way, a lot of Russian rights and speech suppression in law is based in the term extremism. So that actually does, would enable all kinds of crackdowns on anyone Facebook affiliated, even prolific Facebook posters um, in Russia. So I would watch that. And then I'd also watch any Kremlin targeting, uh, as was mentioned up front, of employees, of contractors, uh, of other people um, tied to, you know, sort of the, the free speech Western internet community. I'm happy to hop in next. So there are two things I'm thinking about. One is quick. I really want to know what's going on with Telegram. We know so little about the platform's content moderation, how they use or hand over people's data, what they're doing with state-controlled content. So I would just love to know a little bit more about how Telegram is handling this or not handling it. Um, But I think one of the big indicators I'm watching is which internet companies are going to pull out of the country and which ones are going to be blocked by the state, particularly looking at YouTube because, a lot of Russian platforms are more text-based, so they haven't been as effective. The state hasn't been as effective at creating or propping up video and image-based platforms that you know could replace things like Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube. RuTube has tried, but I think there's like a three million viewers or something compared to you know 80 million on YouTube. So if those, if YouTube is going to be blocked, I think that is even more escalation than, of censorship than what we're seeing with Facebook and Twitter, just given the importance of the platform in the country. Um, so if that were to happen, I think that would be just an acceleration of what we're seeing. Um, so that's one thing I'm looking for. Rebecca, final word to you. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end this on a positive note, I insist, which, which is that I, I'm going to talk about, I mean, we're watching all kinds of things, but, but I'm going to talk about the, the, the stuff I'm watching that gives me hope, which is all the organizations that are tracking and documenting evidence 
um, for, for future use, uh, using the Internet Archive, preserving information that, that is, is becoming inaccessible in different ways. Uh, the people, the, the, the networks of, of people who are debunking deep fakes um, in ways that are, are making it much harder, I think, uh, than in the past for, for disinformation to just kind of blanket, go unquestioned in, in many communities, not all, but, but, but at least in, in ways that I think make, make a real difference. Um, the independent journalism networks who, despite being kicked out of, blocked in uh, Russia and, and elsewhere, continue to operate against all odds, just the number of people coming together, whether they're in the, 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 the region that is directly affected or just coming together in support is real. It's going to make a big difference. I think policymakers and all of us need to be thinking harder about how to strengthen and support that because that is the antidote. That is the immune system if we're going to get through this period, which I agree is going to be rough for a while. Well, on that optimistic note, or I should say perhaps, um, what's the right word for that? I feel like that's a, a, a kind of a note of solidarity. Um, I'll thank each of you for joining me today and for speaking about these things. Thank you. Thanks for putting this together. It was great. Thank you. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guests. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.